This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seibin, and it's time once again for your weekly wrap-up. We're not doing a premiere this week of the wrap-up, but we do it on most Mondays at 7 p.m., So be sure to tune in live and we can chat in the chat room. It's been a really fun uh, thing to use the YouTube premiere feature. And on this week's show, we're going to look at nuking and paving my iMac. BNH is going to begin collecting sales tax here in Connecticut. We'll talk about that and how they differed from Newegg in that effort. Nintendo is rolling back their creators program, which means they're going to potentially, and not maybe all the way, uh, respect fair use. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Airdropping on iPhones might lead to a potential New York City law because of how some creeps have been using it, and I'll show you how to protect yourself. Why a NAS is not a backup, why I dislike cheap Android boxes, and we'll also investigate smart TVs, hacking, and privacy. A lot of stuff to talk about today, so let's get to it. And we'll start off this week's show thanking some new members on my donor box page. We've got Dan G., Walter Nix, Patrick Fisher, Ian McDonald, and Carol Cherminsky. And then we have a bunch of new Patreon supporters, too, including Michael Koopman, Adrian Tower, and Gary Shepard. I want to thank everyone who contributed to the channel this week, along with everyone who contributes on an ongoing basis, along with everyone who just watches every week as well, because all of those things equal channel growth. And this week's wrap-up is being brought to you by Plex and the Plex Pass subscription. As you know, Plex is my favorite media-serving application. You can use a lot of its features for free, but they have additional features that are part of their Plex Pass that you can buy as an annual subscription, a monthly subscription, or a lifetime subscription. And you can get more information on all of the different subscription levels here on screen. You can also gift a Plex Pass to somebody else using my gift link that you see there. And there's been some big changes this month to the music player, which we'll probably cover a little later uh, this month on the channel with a full video. Uh, The first is that they've made some uh, new relationships with the Tidal Music Streaming Service. Uh, They're offering that at a small discount, about a buck or two off the uh, usual subscription price, and it will integrate Tidal into your Plex Music. So if you've got music from all of your favorite artists stored on your server, uh, the title music will also be available side by side. You don't have to switch between one or the other, which I thought was kind of cool. So if you have an artist where you've got maybe three out of their seven albums, the other uh, remaining albums will just appear in your library if you've got the title subscription. One of the things that's neat about title is that they have a lossless version, uh, so you can get full uh, uncompressed CD quality sound. Uh, through title. I think they do compress it, but it's a lossless compression, kind of like Flax. So if you're interested, check it out. I think they're offering 30-day free trials on the title service, and you can see how it integrates uh, with Plex Music. And they also made a bunch of new improvements to the music player. Uh, One of the big things for me is that on iOS, it will now direct play uh, Flack music, which I don't believe it was doing earlier. I think it was running through a, uh, a, a transcoding scheme there. Uh, Android was doing it before. Now both mobile platforms can play your uh, lossless audio on the road, and you can also store it 
on your phone if you have a Plex Pass. And there's also a few other features that they added. One of the fun things is silence compression on the podcast app. So you can actually cut out uh, through the Plex player all the little breaks in the speaking in your podcast to make the listening shorter, especially if they have a lot of dead air. That's a feature in a lot of other podcast apps, and now it's in the Plex podcast app too. So let's take a look now at the Week in Review. In addition to last week's wrap-up, I uploaded eight other videos to the Extras channel and the main channel. It was a productive week, actually. Uh, We had on the Extras channel a supplementary video on the CamLink 4K, so you can see how it captures 4K at 30 frames per second. We also unboxed the Google Home Hub, which I'll be reviewing this week. I then unboxed the RetroFlag MegaPie, which is a case that looks just like a mini Sega Genesis or Mega Drive for your Raspberry Pi. This is from RetroFlag. We did a pretty detailed review on their uh, SNES and Super Famicom cases recently. Uh, This one accompanies that. It's a really cool little case, very well constructed. Uh, They also uh, included a Sega Genesis replica controller, a six-button replica. So I'll try to review that one at some point also Uh, probably on the Extras channel, but maybe on this one if it's really unique. It is a wired controller, USB, and that was something they're offering for 15 bucks, and the case is 25. And then I unboxed something else I hope to get to this week, which is a single-drive Synology NAS that costs under $100. So if you're looking for a way to get into network-attached storage with some of the features you can get on a Synology NAS, it's not a bad entry point, and we'll be exploring that one a little bit later this week. Now, on the main channel, we had... Uh, My top products of 2018, these were the things that I reviewed in the last 12 months that I really thought were great. It wasn't inclusive of everything, obviously, that I reviewed, but the things that really kind of stood out for me. Uh, There were no Chromebooks this year. One viewer was asking about that. I didn't see anything really all that groundbreaking, but I did get in the uh, Google's uh, new Pixel tablet that I'll be uh, taking a look at, hopefully later this week as well. So that might uh, make the cut for next year. Uh, We looked at some low-cost Plex server options, which was a very popular video. A lot of people were interested in that topic, and we'll probably come back to it uh, sometime soon as well. We looked at the Elgato CamLink 4K, which is a great versatile device that plugs uh, into your USB 3 port and takes any HDMI source and turns it into a webcam. Very flexible. It takes a lot of CPU horsepower, though, so you can see the video to see what that was all about. This is an upgrade to something they released about a year or two ago uh, that only supported 1080p. This one now supports 4K at 30 frames per second. And then we had my epic review of the Mac Mini, uh, which certainly got a lot of discussion going in its comment thread because I called it kind of half a computer, which it is. Uh, It lacks a GPU. It just got the Intel hardware. And we found some performance issues related to YouTube watching that I think might relate just to drivers. Because I put the 6-core i7 in that thing. It should actually uh, deliver better YouTube performance. But overall, when we plugged the GPU in, it became a very nice computer. And it's nice, too, that you get some control over the components that go into your Mac when you go in that direction. So we talked a lot about that in that video, which you can see linked down below in the video description. Now, speaking of having control over your Mac, let's take a look at what happened this week, week 93 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And that involved my iMac the other day when I turned it on. Look what happened. It just started running through a loop here. Uh, So here I was on the home screen. And then as you can see, it kept crashing the finder. And then anything else that I tried to load up on this iMac also crashed. It was in a complete and total loop. Now, I thought maybe there's some uh, corruption in the operating system. So I reinstalled 
uh, Mac OS X, thinking that would do it. Nope, it didn't. Uh, and then I said, well, we got to do the old uh, uh, heave-ho here, the nuke and pave, which involves, you know, formatting the drive and starting over from scratch again. And after all that was done, it came back up and it was still doing it. And that was getting a little concerning to me, actually. So what I ended up doing was uh, taking a look around at a few other options. And I never knew this, but you can hold down the D key on your Mac when it boots up and get a pretty hefty diagnostic to run on it. Now, of course, with a Mac, whatever it finds, you can't actually fix, but maybe you might ha- you get lucky with it or something like that. Uh, every Mac has this. In fact, it boots up and grabs what it needs from the internet and runs it that way. Uh, one of the cool recovery options on the Mac is that if you don't have any installation media, uh, but you do have an internet connection, the Mac will actually go online and download Mac OS X and install itself, which is really helpful. Uh, this diagnostic works the same way. Uh, you can see it running here on one of my dad's old uh, laptops and uh, this particular version of the diagnostic actually runs uh, with an old interface. It looks a lot like the original Mac OS as it's running. It does a lot of memory tests and tests some other components on the computer. It runs the fans and then gives you a report when it is over with. And my Mac reported that the RAM modules were bad. I was like, wow, I can't believe the modules are bad. So what I did was go back to the old days of my Apple IIgs back there, which is that when you've got something funky going on, sometimes taking the memory out and putting it back in is enough to get things working again. Now, on that computer back there, it involved actually pulling out the RAM chips one by one and reseeding them. On the iMac, it's actually one of the only user serviceable parts in the computer, and it's got a very convenient access door Uh, underneath where the power cord plugs in. So I popped open that little door there, took the RAM out, put it back in, ran the diagnostic again, and what do you know? It said everything was fine. And then I rebooted the computer, and what do you know? Everything came back up, of course, now at a blank slate. So as it turns out, I probably didn't need to do the nuke and pave, but every once in a while, it's probably not bad to do that. It's actually not hard to get the computer back up and running nowadays because I keep all of my current work on uh, external drives for editing or I've got stuff stored on my NAS here locally and then all the smaller files that I'm working on are either in my Google uh, Docs or Spreadsheets account uh, or up on Dropbox. So it really only took about an hour or so to get everything back up and running. Uh, the only thing that really took some time was getting QuickBooks back because I had to call them to, to reactivate the software. Apparently, when you're not running the most current version, uh, you have to call in every time you reinstall the app, which is a real pain in the you-know-what. But they did give me a number, and then the lady said to me, you know, if you write it down, you won't have to call again. So that's what I did. It took me 15 minutes to get to somebody just to have that conversation reactivate. So that was the only thing that really slowed me down. Otherwise, everything came back up very quickly. A lot of the apps that I use on the Mac, I bought on the Mac App Store. So it was just a matter of click, 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 and everything just kind of reinstalled itself. I did get a tweet, though, that did give, you, give me something to think about here from uh, one of our viewers. Rick Schaefer said, if they had soldered in the RAM, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, people are very vocal towards their hate of soldered-in components, but they can be more reliable. And I think in this case, uh, that is probably true in that something must have gotten in between the pins and the uh, RAM chip inside of that iMac, and that's what set it off. And uh, it's been fine for the last uh, week now uh, after I did that. I mean, I'm a little nervous about it, so I'm going to probably uh, keep an eye on it and maybe look at replacing the RAM at some point, but it's been working. But that's my big concern with the iMac, because if you have one component fail, uh, that all-in-one computer is now completely useless. With the uh, Mac Mini set up with an external GPU and an external display, uh, you've got some ability to kind of swap things out when something breaks and not 
lose an entire computer or worse, have to schlep it all the way to uh, your local Apple store to get fixed. So I think in the future, I'm probably going to do this Mac Mini eGPU thing just because I like having that control and I really don't like the all-in-one solution here that I can't work on or fix any individual components. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And B&H sent me this email the other day saying that they are now going to start collecting Connecticut sales taxes. And I have a feeling you'll be getting this letter in other states as well. And this is in response to a June 2018 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that we talked about a little bit earlier. Now, what B&H is doing here is in stark contrast to what Newegg did a few months back, which we covered extensively here on the channel. Uh, What happened was Connecticut sent a letter to Newegg saying, hey, turn over your customer records or else. Uh, Newegg did it. And uh, as a result, I got a tax bill and many other people got tax bills as well. And Newegg didn't tell their customers until after they sent the stuff in. And a lot of folks were paying back sales taxes. And I was in a situation where uh, I had to pay sales tax for things that I bought through my past job as well. It was a real mess. Uh, and Newegg just turned over the information. I have no doubt that B&H probably got the same letter from Connecticut and either ignored it or fought it. Uh, but now it looks like with the Supreme Court ruling happening, uh, that is now kind of a moot point and they'll begin collecting sales tax moving forward. But it doesn't look like there'll be any efforts to try and collect uh, back taxes from their sales records. So I think this is a good thing. It's a level playing field now. A lot of B&H's competitors are also collecting sales tax. So this might uh, impact their sales a little bit, but their prices have been very good and they have some really good sales all the time on really cool production gear that I am often uh, picking up, even sometimes when I don't need it. I can't even tell you how many tripods I have right now, but all in, I think it's probably fine that they're doing this, and we'll see what happens next. Now, also this week, Nintendo announced that they are rolling back their draconian policies in regards to independent content creators using Nintendo footage and products in their videos. Uh, I think they've been running afoul of fair use, in my opinion, but most of us independent content creators don't have the legal resources to sue Nintendo to prove that we had a fair use or even argue it. Uh, So in many cases, people just saw their revenue being taken away by this big corporation. Uh, Nintendo did create something called the Creators Program, where if you followed a specific set of guidelines, you could get some of that revenue back from Nintendo directly. Uh, Now that is all going away, thankfully. And they have put up some guidelines here that largely mirror what a fair use would be. Uh, So you can see here they will now allow you to do a Let's Play video and video game reviews. But you have to put some commentary and some value of your own uh, into the video. They don't want you just uploading uh, a playthrough of a game without any real commentary or creative uh, input here. So that makes sense to me. That's typically what would be considered fair use. But they are limiting the platforms where they're going to allow this to happen on. So right now you don't see uh, Amazon on this list at all, do you? But you do see YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch, and a few of the other major ones that most people are currently posting to. But this might be an issue if you're posting to Amazon. Technically, you're outside of the scope of this uh, new agreement that they're putting together. Uh, They also had something interesting here under question nine about corporate entities. Uh, They're saying that these guidelines are only applicable to individual consumers. So I don't know what that means if you're an LLC like I am. That's kind of a weird thing there that they would put that in place. I also wonder what this means for journalistic entities. Technically, they could go after GameSpot or IGN. It's still this pick and choose thing that they're doing about which 
companies can review their games versus not. I don't know how much they're going to go into enforcing this and determining who's an individual versus a corporation, but that one uh, really stuck out for me. Uh, There will be cases still where they'll remove things from sharing platforms if they find it inappropriate, and they can define what that means. And that was one of their main concerns initially when they started going after content more aggressively as they felt like people were using words and language that uh, did not fit the brand very well. And that was one of the criteria that you had to meet uh, to get into their creator program in the first place. They didn't want people swearing and doing inappropriate comments. It uh, looks like that is still kind of here. So if they find something they don't like, they might still come after you. Now, if you're a content creator who's focused on emulation, you might want to look at question 11 on their FAQ, uh, where they define what is unlawful, infringing, or inappropriate. Uh, they got the usual stuff here that you're, you know, your content isn't violating any applicable laws. It's not infringing intellectual property rights. But they also added a third bullet here about featuring pirated Nintendo software. So, for example, if you're showing uh, some Wii U game running in 4K, that might be enough for Nintendo to say, yep, pirated content, not off the original disc, you're out of here. So just bear that in mind. They might uh, look at that still, even though they've got this new approach to things. I'm sure this is also going to apply, of course, to what we saw uh, this past week with the soundtrack for Super Smash Brothers leaking out. Uh, Nintendo took down a bunch of channels for that. Uh, clearly within their rights to do it, but just keep in mind, Bullet 3 might also impact emulator creators too. Now, this next story is kind of creepy. I guess people have been sending uh, unsolicited, inappropriate photographs via airdrop to people on mass transit. It's happening in New York City quite a bit. I was talking to my brother-in-law the other day who's from Boston. He says his phone pops up with these things all the time as well. And the way airdrop works on the iPhone is that you can take a photo, uh, hit the share button, and then anyone who's got... Uh, an iPhone that's near you can potentially receive the image. And when you actually go to send the image, the recipient will see a preview on their screen before they click accept. And this is how it works. And unfortunately, if you are being sent one of these inappropriate images, you have no choice but to see it because that is what pops up on your screen. So you can click on the accept or decline button. So I can see why this is becoming a problem and why they might just ban the practice outright. Now, what I did on my phone years ago when they first rolled out this feature is I set my airdrop to contacts only because I do find it a very useful feature, but I never receive things from people who are not in my address book. So if you have this checked on, uh, what will happen is if if they're not in your address book, uh, then they can't send you anything and you won't appear uh, on that person's phone either in airdrops. That's probably a good safeguard. Or, of course, you can turn off the feature completely. Pretty creepy, though. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers, and I wanted to start off with a public service announcement regarding backing up your NAS, because I got uh, this comment in the other day from someone, and it's something that I hear from time to time, and I want to make sure that everyone knows that even if you have a dual-drive network-attached storage device like this one, uh, the NAS is not the backup. You have redundancy, but it is not a true backup because you've got a single point of failure, this device here. You could have a fire. You could have a flood. Somebody could walk off with your NAS. Your kid could knock it off the table. Think of every possible scenario where your NAS could break, and that would also take your data with it. Now, these NAS devices do have robust redundancy, which is good in most cases. Uh, So that means if you had, for example, Drive 2 here fail, 
you can pull it out even while the device is in operation, put in another drive, and drive one will slowly get imaged over to drive two, and you'll have that redundancy restored after a period of time. It will take uh, some time if you've got a lot of data, though. And one thing to keep in mind is that when you are in that repair scenario where you're bringing in a new drive and re-imaging the first drive to it, uh, if you lose the first drive in that process, your data is gone. So this is one of those things where if you have a backup, uh, that situation also would be something that you can avoid significant data loss from. So all these things you just got to think about. And the really important thing is to have a number of backups. So what I do with my NAS right now is I have a, a local external drive backup. So I back up everything that's important from the NAS to an external drive that's plugged into it. Every week or two, I take that drive and move it off-site someplace and then swap in another drive and keep that backup going. I use Synology's Hyper Backup for my backups. It works really well. Uh, it's also able to keep versions of files up to a certain amount, so I can even uh, roll back a file that I changed and didn't intend to change. So that's really helpful to have. Another thing I've been doing is also backing up to the cloud. I'm using Amazon Glacier for that. Uh, that's a service where it's very cheap to store the data, but it can be very expensive to get the data out, and it also takes a long time to get the data out. But my theory here is that that's my absolute last resort because I have very good local off-site backups that I'm using. So you know, if that somehow fails, I have the cloud as that fallback, and that way I'm not spending a lot of money to store my data up in the cloud, but I still have it up there uh, if I need it. So that's my backup strategy. And then, of course, the things that I'm working on, uh, documents, for example, I'm storing those either, again, in my Google Drive, as I mentioned earlier, or in Dropbox. So those kinds of things are covered as well. But again, make sure you got the NAS backed up because just, just because you have redundancy, again, doesn't mean you have a backup. And David James Halligan wrote in about privacy and security with smart televisions. He knows that you can turn off the features, but he's still concerned about it. Then again, he's never heard of someone's TV getting hacked into. Well, let me tell you about people's TVs getting hacked into. Uh, Consumer Reports ran something back in February on a new project that they've launched uh, where they're looking specifically at the security of these televisions and trying to find holes in them. And they've already found a few in Samsung and Roku televisions, and I'm sure they'll be finding more as time goes on. Of course, as you all know, with Android and some of these other mobile operating systems that are running on these televisions, there are always things that they find at some point that have to get patched. And if you're not keeping your television up to date or it's not keeping itself up to date, or perhaps the TV is no longer something that's supported by the manufacturer, those vulnerabilities will stay in there in perpetuity and somebody could stumble across them and do all sorts of nasty things to your television. In fact, in my old job, we had a TV that had a webcam built into it, and that could certainly be a point of uh, concern as well. So there's really, I think, as many concerns about smart televisions as there are about cell phones, tablets, and computers. If there's a way in from a major brand with a lot of installed units, I think people will try to find a way in. And it's hard not to buy a smart television anymore. And then you have cases like what happened with Vizio about a year ago, where they were maintaining the old television's firmware, but they were putting in software to spy on you. Uh, you can see this release uh, from the Federal Trade Commission alleges that Vizio retrofitted older television models by installing its tracking software remotely. All of this, the FTC and the Attorney General 
of New Jersey argue was done without clearly telling customers or getting their consent to collect this information. And of course, as you all know, whatever information you can collect from a person might be valuable to sell to others. And that might have been part of what Vizio was looking at doing here, was finding a way to extract more profit from those old televisions and updating the firmware, maybe with some security patches, but also with some of their own backdoors to collect information. But they're not the only ones under fire. Uh, It looks like there are some things happening in the U.S. Senate recently uh, that will also be looking at this issue. Senator Markey uh, and Senator Blumenthal, who's my senator here in Connecticut, Uh, have asked the Federal Trade Commission to look into Samba TV, which is a software layer that is on a number of popular smart TVs, and that is doing similar data collection. So this is going to be something we're probably seeing across all brands of televisions, and it's probably happening across all brands of popular TV boxes, too. It's hard to escape it. And if you're watching this on YouTube right now, uh, there's a good chance that YouTube has collected a lot of information on you. They give you this video because they know you like watching it, Uh, But they're also collecting other information that is being used to uh, help make the company money. And I think that's the world we live in today. But I think it's important for customers to know exactly what is going on and have some control as to what they give up in that process. And it'll be interesting to see what these senators uncover uh, with this particular effort. We might try to get one of them on if you want. I can try to reach out to their press offices. Let me know if you all might find it interesting to uh, listen to one of these senators and hear what their concerns are regarding your smart television. Now, last week I was talking about my frustrations with fake Android TV boxes, but I wanted to talk about some frustrations about the non-fake but still not good Android TV boxes that are out there. Uh, Anthony Wagner wrote in asking me to check out the Magic C N6 Max. Uh, This is what it looks like here. Uh, This one's actually, from a performance standpoint, not a bad uh, product. In fact, this brand, I think, is actually somewhat well-received out there. Uh, This has an RK3399 processor built in. Sells for about $100. The problem I have with these is that they really market them at general consumers who are looking for a cheap television box, and then those consumers don't really know what they're getting into. And that's why I typically avoid these boxes, because they are terrible to use for a general consumer. I always look at these things like, would my dad be able to work with this thing? And most of the time, the answer is no. Now, this is not that box. It's a similar one, though, with an uh, older rock chip processor built in. And when you boot it up, this is what you get. You get this really flaky interface here that is not, of course, the true Android TV interface. And then they do some cheats to try to make it look like it is. So, for example, uh, YouTube here is not actually an app. It's a uh, web wrapper. It's loading up a web page and giving us the lean back version of YouTube that kind of makes it look like you might be on YouTube, but you're not. Uh, So if you were to download the actual YouTube app and load it up, I think this is it here, Uh, you don't get the TV interface, you get actually the uh, app. And it's like the app that you would run on your tablet. It doesn't have any TV interface to it whatsoever. It's very hard to navigate it with your remote control. And you'll see, too, when you load up other Android apps, none of them are going to be optimized for televisions because it thinks it is running uh, on a tablet. So even on Netflix here, we can load this up. It looks like you're inside of the regular Netflix app, but you can see we've got the uh, title bar here at the top. You can pull it down and basically replicate a tablet interface here. Uh, most of the time, these movies and shows do not appear at 1080p. A lot of times you're running them at 720p. 
Uh, you're never going to get 4K out of this on Netflix, for example. So altogether, it becomes a very frustrating endeavor because the apps that you are expecting to run on here think they're running on a phone or a tablet and just aren't usable. So that's why I typically don't look at uh, a lot of these boxes because of those interface issues. And I was getting excited to start to see more of these cheap boxes running Android TV, but as we discussed last week, it's not really Android TV, but rather a hacked version of it that does not provide full functionality. And in our Q&A for you this week, I am crowdsourcing a solution to a problem that I have and a few other viewers have as well, which relates to Wi-Fi calling on your mobile phone. So if you're not familiar, most of the major networks here in the U.S., the major carriers, allow you to use your phone on your Wi-Fi network, especially in areas where you don't get a very good cell signal. So where my studio is here at the bottom of my house in the basement, when I'm sitting here, I could not get to a cell tower, but I can connect with the phone through my Wi-Fi and get on the network that way. The problem is, though, as I start roaming around my house, I've got a bunch of these Unify access points all over the place, and as I hop from one to the other, my calls get interrupted and usually get dropped. Now, I know a mesh solution might be a better one to look at here, but I'd love to hear from any of you who are using Wi-Fi calling with some kind of mesh system, preferably Unify, uh, maybe to give me some tips as to how we can make it work more reliably so I can walk around my house without dropping calls. Because right now, if I get a call and have to run upstairs for something, I usually drop the call by the time I get to the kitchen and it's driving me crazy. So let me know uh, if you've got any solutions for me down in the comments below. Now our channel of the week this week is going to be something a little bit different because I'm going to recommend one of my own videos. But I think you're going to like this. It's something that a lot of people haven't watched before. And I think if you're into the space program as I am, you're going to find it really fascinating. So earlier this week, uh, NASA landed a, a new lander on the surface of Mars. I believe it was the first thing to land on Mars since 2012 when the uh, Curiosity rover came down on that huge sky crane system. And I was reminded of an interview that I did about four years ago uh, with Rob Manning, who wrote a book on that mission. Rob Manning was the guy uh, who first came up with this crazy sky crane maneuver to deliver uh, curiosity to the surface of Mars. That rover is so big, it's about the size of a golf cart. So they had to really think of very new and innovative ways to get that thing onto the ground without damaging it. And it's a really uh, tremendously interesting story to read in the book. But we interviewed him, Rob Manning, uh, via Skype. It was kind of funny. We had some Skype problems when we first got the call going. Here's a guy that can land things on Mars, but still has Skype problems like the rest of us. But he uh, just gave a tremendously fun interview because you can see that not only does he really love what he does, he's also very good at making it make sense because he's dealing with very technical engineering uh, and he's able to explain it in a way that makes sense to everybody. And it's just so fun to watch his enthusiasm talking about uh, this mission and how he got this thing there and how he had to work with everyone to do it. Uh, just a tremendously fun interview. One of the most uh, favorite experiences I've had here on the channel. And it's only been watched like 1,300 times. So maybe a few more of you might find it interesting too who haven't seen it before. Uh, you can check it out at that link. It is also on my podcast feed. It's, of course, down uh, lower on the list because it was a while ago. But you can also listen to it in audio form. Again, just a really fun interview and definitely worth checking out. So this week on the channel, we've got a bunch of stuff to look at, hopefully. I got in the uh, Legion 7000P from Lenovo. This is another uh, kind of mid-range gaming laptop. They've got a few different options available. Uh, we'll look at it and compare it to some of the other ones that we've looked at from them recently. So that one's on loan from them. You'll see the unboxing soon. 
I'm all set to go on this thing, the Google Home Hub. I'm going to try to shoot that uh, later today or tomorrow. So that might be our next review up on the channel. We're also going to get to the new Google Pixel Slate. This actually came in the other day, but I didn't get all the pieces yet. So I have the tablet and the pen, but not the keyboard. The keyboard, I think, is coming in a little later today. So hopefully I'll get that unboxed and midweek I will have a review of this after I've had some time to play around with it. Uh, This is Google's new flagship device. It is running Chrome OS, uh, but it is also, of course, capable of running Android apps and, I believe, can run Linux apps, too. They've got Intel processors across the entire product line with this thing, uh, starting with the Celeron that begins at around $599 and then going all the way up to what is essentially one of the core MI7s that... Uh, run without a fan. So it's going to be a pretty pricey device after you get the keyboard and pen factored in. I think even at the entry level, you're looking at 800 bucks for the complete package. So that's quite a bit, uh, you know, it's comparable to an iPad Pro or a Surface or something like that. So we'll see what it looks like, Uh, but it's really fun to see Chrome OS really maturing here and turning into an operating system that can compete with Windows and OS 10. They've got a nice foothold in education now, and it looks like with this Android edition and the Linux edition, it's going to be something that consumers might want to use more as well. And this is, I think, Google's reference design for that. And hopefully, if we get all that done, we'll get to the single drive Synology NAS as well, because it does have some value for folks, provided, of course, you back it up, right? So uh, we'll try to get to that one a little later this week, too. And still on the docket is the Mr. Uh, It's definitely going to get done at some point here. We just got a bunch of stuff in during the holiday season here that I don't want to miss. But maybe when we get to that uh, little lull in the action during the holidays, I will start playing with my Mr. I do have all the parts for that. So if you want to help the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv slash support and make a monthly or one-time contribution. We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex in addition to sponsoring this video. Uh, they also have us in their affiliate program, so you can sign up for a free Plex account. No credit card required at lon.tv slash Plex, and we'll get a small commission for that. Uh, we do get a larger commission if you sign up for Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else. Great gift for the holiday season for somebody that has everything, uh, but maybe not a Plex Pass. Uh, we also have other channels that you can check me out on the Extras channel for unboxings and supplementary content. The podcast feed that I mentioned earlier has audio versions of this show and all the interviews that I've done over the years. Our Snippets channel has search-friendly portions of this show that you can find there. We're getting close to monetization level there. We've got over 1,000 subscribers now. And we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams. And I'll probably do uh, one or two more as we work our way through the holiday season. So stay tuned for those. Those are always fun to do. And if you want to get notified when I do something, you can click on the bell to let you know when things are happening here on the channel or when I do go live. So be sure to do that. And you can also sign up for my email list at lon.tv slash email. That goes out uh, only every once in a while, not too frequently. We have the Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook where I'm posting content from this channel and the extras channel quite a bit. We also have the Facebook group where we've got almost 600 people uh, now conversing with each other, which is a great place to uh, meet some other viewers of the show. And then we have my store where you can buy things that I have previously reviewed here on the channel and I'm now getting rid of. I got to refill the shelves there because everybody bought everything. So thank you for that. I'll try to get some more stuff up there later on in the week. When you want to find out when something is new, you can sign up for another email list called the Store Alert. And every time I update the store, I push out an email to everyone who's interested to let you know what the latest deals are. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you all for your continued support and viewership. Please keep those comments coming. And until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.tv supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, 
the Four Guys with Quarters podcast. Tom Albrecht. Gerard Newberg. And Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.